First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 211, The First Duty. Welcome in to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm also one of your hosts. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek in forensic detail, trying to determine what are the truths to be found and what's really important at the end of the day. Now remind me, are you Ken or Ray? Uh, I'm John Champion. Uh, Which one are you? (laughs) I can't remember. This week, young cadet Wesley Crusher learns a very tough lesson about truth and loyalty. It's the first duty on today's After School Special. Can I go ahead and say that now? (laughs) I think you should. Just go ahead. We can get it out there. We'll say it again three or four more times. This week on a very special Next Generation. (laughs) John's got trivia coming up for this episode in just a moment. But first, a few words about a bunch of starships. So uh, this past weekend, as we record this... I got to hang out with a bunch of Star Trek geeks, which was a lot of fun. I envy you. I envy you that. Yeah, it was kind of cool. We'll talk more about it. We, we might even do like a little supplemental something or other about it. It seems to me it, it might be a good idea. Yeah. Cool. Um, I got to tell you, though, I saw a 3D printed Enterprise E, mm. about uh, 18 inches long, unpainted, mm-hmm. $5,000. I'll take two. <laughs> right. You see, and I'm glad, Ray, that you can do that. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. You're John. I'm glad yeah. that you can do that. And more power to you. Um, I'm thinking, though, for me, that wouldn't be terribly accessible. And I'm going to suggest something that would probably be more accessible for some other people. Uh, it's the official Star Trek Starships collection. I like the way you think. So here's how it works. You subscribe. You get two ships a month from the original series through the Kelvin timeline and beyond. See what we did there? Um, It's not just the ships that you get, though. You also get a magazine filled with production notes, design notes, and in-universe information about the ship. Plus, you get a digital download of the magazine, which not only gives you access to even more information online, it lets you keep the physical magazine as close to new as possible. And you get all of that for 20 bucks a ship. Two ships a month, two magazines a month, two digital magazines a month, 40 bucks a month. Plus, two stands, and then some other stuff, like extra surprises, the longer you stay subscribed. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can start your subscription at a ridiculously low price. You can get the Enterprise 1701D, home to such amazing extras as Guy facing away from the camera behind the horseshoe, and Guy on his way to the Enterprise blockbuster. (laughs) Get the Enterprise D and its accompanying magazine for $4.95 just to try it out. 
khaki pants not included. The address <laughs> to do that again is st-starships.com slash mission log. st-starships.com slash mission log. Trying it out not only supports this show, it makes you the commander of your own personal fleet. That address again is st-starships.com slash mission log. And a big thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. If you've uh, been collecting those ships, by the way, maybe you've already sent us a picture of your ships, but by golly, they just keep coming, so you just keep adding. Uh, we'd love it if you sent us those pictures or some other comments, different things. I got a few ways to get in touch with us. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, one of the four of us hosting this show is going to do trivia. Let's see. Let's see. I'm looking for hands. I'm, ah, John. John is going to take <laughs> trivia this week. Here we go, Ken. This week's trivia for the first duty. The episode is written by Ronald D. Moore and Naren Shankar. Now, we know about Ron Moore, but, but this is the first time that Naren Shankar has been credited to a script. He was a Star Trek fan, and he sent a spec script to the show. His script didn't get produced, but Jerry Taylor liked his writing enough to bring him in as an intern during season four. His strong suit was advising on the tack ends of the script, and he found himself contributing the science information that would work its way into shows, and eventually he found himself working with Ron Moore for this episode. Interesting notes there. Uh, the outline was Ron's idea. He had concocted something where Wesley's crime was more obvious and uh, that he was blatantly lying to Starfleet. Also, he, Ron, would have chosen differently in the end under a different set of circumstances in which Wesley kept silent in order to save the whole team. They would have not been kicked out. Um, it was Michael Piller who suggested the outcome and Wesley's ultimate decision. The episode was directed by Paul Lynch. Now, this is the last episode that Paul Lynch directed for Star Trek The Next Generation. He started out early in season one with The Naked Now, and he directed a total of five episodes. And we will see more of him with Deep Space Nine. Now, we have a visit to Starfleet Academy. This is the first time ever we get to see it here, of course, in the next-gen era. Now, in the motion picture, we, of course, saw pieces of Starfleet headquarters, uh, but the Golden Gate Bridge is in both, so we have to assume they're very close to each other. Now, of course, Starfleet Academy is a matte painting done by Dan Curry, shot but composited from a real-life location that we have seen before, the Donald C. Tillman Water Reclamation Plant in Van Nuys, California. We first used that location as Rubicon 3 in Justice. Now, there's a flag flying at half-staff on the Academy grounds. You might have noticed that, and that flag has the Academy logo. So, Joe Senna came up with the idea for the Starfleet Academy logo. Mike Okuda finished and perfected it. The date on that logo is 2161, right there in Roman numerals. So that jibes with what Deanna said a couple of episodes ago about the Federation being founded in 2161. And we know that the motto is ex astra scientia, 
from the star's knowledge, although the original version mistakenly has ex astra, not asterisk. So you may notice that depending on the version of this episode that you're watching. And that motto is a reference to the Apollo 13 mission motto, which was ex luna scientia. Now, in Wesley's room at the Academy, there's a model of an Apollo command and service module, and there's also a model of a Constitution-class starship. In fact, I'll go so far as to say it's a model of the Enterprise, and specifically, I will go so far as to say (laughs) that that is a model of the Enterprise put out by the Franklin Mint in 1991. I don't know if this was specific product placement, but it sure comes close. You know, it could just be that Wesley, like you, is a collector of tiny little ships. I think that might be the case. He might have hit up the, whatever the 24th century version of eBay is, and he's like, yeah, I want that pewter starship with the jewel tone nacelles. <laughs> yeah, that would look really nice right here as the only bit of personalization I get in my room. Yeah, or he could be a Franklin Mentophile. Check, check the he pockets could. of his outfit. He may have a couple of those Franklin Mint coins in there, you know, go, mm-hmm. go to the cupboard, mm-hmm. some Franklin Mint plates. Right. It could be all Franklin men all the time. <laughs> now, in this episode, we have a reference to Chuck Yeager with the Yeager loop. Um, please look him up if you don't know who Chuck Yeager is. Uh, you should just know. Um, and if you don't, go watch the right stuff. Uh, don't make me explain it to you here. And don't make me show up on your doorstep with a copy of the right stuff. Uh, You'll just have to be on your own for that one. Now, the U.S. Air Force Academy honor code to this day is, quote, we will not lie, steal or cheat, nor tolerate among us anyone who does. So, Ken, you might be interested to know that this episode has been shown at the U.S. Air Force Academy as an example of their honor code. Hmm. Now, there's a lot of talk here about Saturn's moon Titan, but not as much about Mimas, where we have an emergency evac station. Um, In case you don't know, Mimas is a tiny, tiny moon, just a fraction of the size of the Earth. In fact, its total landmass is about the equivalent of Spain. So we're talking about a little moon. And uh, because it's so little, there is just a fraction of the gravity of Earth to go along with it. It's mostly made up of ice, and um, I feel bad for the people who are stationed there for long periods. Now, there is a deleted scene for this episode, which you can check out if you have the Blu-ray version of The Next Generation. It's uh, a conversation between Dr. Crusher and Lieutenant Albert. And uh, in this episode, we have so many guest stars. It's It's like a 1970s variety show. But here we go. Here are the highlights. Um, We have Cadet Hajar, who is played by Walker Brand. Now, this is one of the very first roles for her, other than TV appearances on 90210 and Femme Fatales and The Single Guy. She's appeared in the movies City Slickers and Dante's Peak. She was a regular in the German TV show Die Gang. We have Cadet Jaxa, who is played by Shannon Phil. She has just a few credits to her name, a couple of TV guest roles before and after Next Gen. She will return, though, as Cito Jaxa in one more episode. We have Captain Satellic, who is played by Richard Fancy. Richard is from Illinois. He has made the rounds on soap operas and sitcoms, and you may have seen him as a recurring character on Seinfeld as Mr. Lipman. He also appeared in multiple times on Murder One, L.A. Law, Boston Legal, and was Mr. Stravely on It's Gary Shandling's show. And he turns up on Third Rock from the Sun and Weird Science, to name but a few more. 
Jacqueline Brooks plays Admiral Brand. She started making TV appearances in the 1950s on daytime soaps. And by the 70s, you could find her in a handful of feature films. She later appeared on Miami Vice, The Equalizer, Law and Order, and she was in Naked Gun Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear. Joshua Albert's father is played by Ed Lauder, such a prolific and totally recognizable character actor. He easily moved back and forth from TV roles to feature films throughout his career. Some highlights include The Office, The Equalizer, Hawaii Five-O, The X-Files, NYPD Blue, Miami Vice, The A-Team, BJ and the Bear, and The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo. Features include The Longest Yard, King Kong, the 1976 version, True Romance, and the Academy Award-winning film The Artist. There are so many more. Louder passed away in 2013. We also have Robert Duncan McNeil. He plays Nicholas Locarno. Before Star Trek, you may have caught Robbie on The Twilight Zone, in uh, the Masters of the Universe movie, and on a handful of soap operas and TV guest roles. He's also quite an accomplished director. Oh, yeah, and we may just be seeing a lot more of him in a different role. That is, if all of you can stick with us for another four years or so. And finally, we have the great Ray Walston as Boothby. Now, he's somebody who TV audiences needed no introduction to. He, of course, was the star, along with Bill Bixby, of My Favorite Martian. And it's worth it to say that a lot of people on the set of Star Trek The Next Generation for this episode were fans of My Favorite Martian. And uh, they, in fact, did the little... uh, Did you ever see the show, Ken? He had a little bit where he kind of wiggled his finger and he would do the, the levitation thing of objects. They would actually do that on the show while he was around and another little bit of trivia here the spaceship that ray walston used in my favorite martian kind of an odd looking kind of looks like a giant silver shoe well that prop is now in the personal collection of doug drexler who of course worked in special effects and production on next gen today on a very special episode of my favorite groundskeeper an old gardener teaches a middle-aged captain, to teach a young cadet, to teach himself. Prologue. Space, the final frontier. Just kidding, we're going back to Earth again. It's time for graduation at Starfleet Academy, where Captain Picard will be the commencement speaker. Just so happens that Wesley Crusher is on a flight team that will pull some Blue Angels-type stuff near Saturn as part of the ceremony. Before the bridge crew can get too misty by remembering their Academy days, there's a private message from Admiral Brand. She tells Picard that there's been an accident involving Wesley. Act 1. Wesley will be fine. He had some injuries, but he's being treated. Picard explains to Dr. Crusher just what happened. The flight team was practicing when one of their ships exploded, taking out the other four. All but one of the pilots was safely beamed away in time. One of Wesley's friends, Joshua Albert, didn't make it. So there will be a graduation and an inquiry going on at the same time. Wesley is recuperating in his room at the academy when he's visited by Beverly and Picard. They're both concerned about him, but he says he just can't talk about the accident anymore right now. Then another visitor stops by, Nicholas Locarno, leader of Wesley's Nova Squadron. Wesley kind of gives his mom and the captain the old, okay, you should get out of here now, which is pretty awkward and seemingly not like Wesley. With the grown-ups now out of earshot, Locarno tells Wesley the inquiry will start at 1500, 
and he's got nothing to worry about as long as they stick together. Act 2. In the gorgeous Japanese garden surrounding the academy, Picard finds an old friend, Boothby, the groundskeeper. Well, he's kind of a friend. He plays the part of an annoyed old man pretty well, and he lets on a moment later that he remembers the captain from way back in the class of 2327. They catch up a bit. Picard was exceptional then and quite a wrestler, too. But Picard has something else on his mind. He made a terrible mistake at the academy, and it was Boothby who helped him out of a jam. He's back after all these years to say thanks. But Boothby is cool. Hey, we all make mistakes, and Picard did what he thought he had to do. Boothby just got Picard to listen to his own conscience. And by the way, Boothby knew Joshua Albert. He knows Wesley, too, and all the cadets who were in Nova Squadron. The four survivors now are appearing at the inquiry, and it is Nicholas Lacarno who explains their story to Admiral Brand, Captain Satelk, the other ranking officer in charge, and the assembled audience, including Beverly Crusher, Captain Picard, and Joshua Albert's father. Lacarno's story is this. The five of them were approaching Saturn's moon Titan and moved into a closer formation in order to make a Jaeger loop. Cadet Albert's ship hit Cadet Hajar's, and the resulting explosion gave the other four about two seconds to beam out. Hajar's asked about their flight plan, which they deviated from. Didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but so be it. She didn't see the collision take place, just her proximity alarm go off. In fact, no one seemed to actually see what happened. Satelk asked Cadet Jaxa what she saw, being in the tail position. She says nothing. She was flying on sensors alone, which is highly unusual for a stunt pilot. Again, Admiral Bran asks what she saw, and Jaxa says she doesn't remember. At this point, Locarno volunteers some new information. In his words, Joshua Albert was flying a little erratic lately. He was nervous and not on his game. He didn't tell anyone because, well, Locarno thought it would get better. In essence, Cadet Albert caused the crash by accident, and Locarno and the others wanted to protect their friend and his memory. Admiral Brand chastises the group for allowing him to fly and not bringing any of this information to the inquiry first. The inquiry will reconvene the next day, and the lone recovered flight recorder from Wesley's ship will be entered into evidence. As the parties break up, Locarno tells Wesley, Everything's fine. Trust me. Act 3. Aboard the Enterprise, Picard has asked for help from Data and Geordi LaForge. Admiral Brand has released the evidence and testimony for them to review, and they should see if anything stands out. On Earth, the four remaining members of Nova Squadron are arguing with each other. Wesley confronts Locarno that they all agreed that they wouldn't have to lie. Nicholas says they aren't lying, that Joshua panicked, but Wesley says they don't know that. They don't know that he caused the collision. Hajar and Jaxa reluctantly agree with Nicholas, and they pressure Wesley into going along since otherwise it could mean the end of their Starfleet careers. Then Nicholas lays it on really thick. They're a team. He always wanted them to stick together, and Joshua would have wanted that too. Wesley is looking at the flight recorder data when he is visited by Joshua's father, Lieutenant Commander Albert. He's returning a sweater that Joshua borrowed when he and Wesley went on a ski trip together. Albert tells Wesley just how much Joshua respected him personally and the team, and he's sorry now that his son let him down. It's Wesley's turn now to address the inquiry. Using the data from his flight recorder, he walks them through what they're seeing, a POV from his cockpit 
There's Locarno's ship ahead, and Joshua would have been on Wesley's port side in a diamond slot formation. But as the ships come out of Titan's gravity well, the recording ends. Wesley explains that a few seconds later, they started into a Jaeger loop, and his proximity alarm went off, and then he was hit. He lost control of the ship. Next thing he remembers, the transporter took him to the emergency evac station on Mimas, and that's it. That's all he's got. Until Captain Satellic asks him to describe a Jaeger loop, which he does. And then Admiral Brand asks if they stayed in formation for the loop. Wesley says yes. Satellic shocks everyone when he brings up a satellite image from Saturn that captured the ships right after the loop, and they are definitely not in a diamond formation. In fact, they are circled around each other, the tops of their ships all facing inward. When asked for an explanation, Wesley says he has none. Act 4. Poor Beverly. She's trying so hard to convince Wesley to all be okay. There must be something wrong with the satellite image because clearly he couldn't be lying. She'll ask Admiral Brand to delay the hearings if she has to, but Wesley says no, she should stay out of this. Picard's turn now. He sees Boothby again, and they chat about Nova Squadron. It's really simple. Nova Squadron are revered by the other students, and their leader, Nicholas, is revered by the others in the squadron. They'll do whatever he asks, even if what he asks isn't on the up-and-up. It's all Picard needs to hear. Back on the Enterprise, Data and Geordi have made a little headway. They've run every simulation, but they can't quite come up with a reason why the cadet ships collided. Everything seemed to be working under normal parameters. The only odd thing was that Wesley had opened a coolant interlock, something you wouldn't normally do during flight, since that may cause the engine to ignite the plasma. Picard knows now what's going on. He was trying to ignite the plasma. Act 5. Welcome back aboard the Enterprise, Wesley. No time like the present for a good old-fashioned dressing down by the captain in his ready room. Picard starts out easy. He shows Wesley a simulation of a dangerous maneuver called a Colvord Starburst, in which ships intersect and then ignite their plasma trails. Picard thinks Nicholas Locarno wanted to perform this banned maneuver to thrill people at a graduation, and he's sure that the other four members of Nova Squadron were talked into it. Wesley refuses to answer the charge. He told the inquiry what had happened up to that point and left out the rest, and Picard sees the lie of a mission. If you thought Picard was tough before, well, you know exactly what's coming next. You see, Wesley, your duty is to the truth, period. You lied, and now you have to tell the truth, or Picard will do it for you, period, end of story, dismissed. Wesley tells Locarno that they've been found out, and with no direct evidence, Nicholas thinks that they don't have anything to worry about. It's their word against his theory. Wesley can't take it, though. He wants to tell the truth, and this sets off Nick. Who is Wesley to decide what happens to the other three? Nicholas tells Wesley he should resign his appointment to the Academy. It isn't about him. It's about the team. That's where his loyalty should be. The inquiry reconvenes. Admiral Brand addresses Nova Squadron that there is not enough evidence to reconcile the inconsistencies in the satellite data and the testimony given by the four of them. She's suspicious but suspicion isn't enough to go on. The case will be closed. The formal reprimand will be filed only for filing an incomplete flight plan and for allowing Joshua Albert to fly when he wasn't ready. And flight privileges will be revoked. Then Wesley speaks up. 
He tells the Admiral that the four of them pushed Joshua into performing the covert starburst, knowing it was dangerous and knowing that he wasn't ready. Before Picard leaves the Academy, he finds Wesley in the gardens to tell him the news that Nicholas Locarno has been expelled. He took the full blame when the Academy wanted to expel them all, and this news makes Wesley feel even worse. Somehow, Locarno actually kept his word. Wesley will still have the formal reprimand, and he will be held back another year at the Academy. But Wesley thanks Picard. He pushed him in the right direction. Picard says no. He just reminded him of what he knew he had to do. The end. Question. Yeah, go ahead. Do you get to just join the Blue Angels as like an after-school program? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess so. That's yeah. how that works, huh? <laughs> yeah, totally. It's kind of amazing, because am I right in thinking this is the first year that he's at the Academy, right? Or is this the second? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it would be his second okay. year. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, feel, mm-hmm. it feels early still, nonetheless. It does. I mean, because yeah. the Blue Angels are like the best of the best, right? As mm-hmm. far as pilots go. Right. Okay. And so I would think to be Nova Squadron, you'd have to be the best of the best as far as pilots go. Right, right. Is Wesley going there to be a pilot? Uh, maybe. Okay. But that wasn't my yeah. That wasn't my impression of him before. Yeah. They, yeah. You have to take a lot of that with a grain of salt. I mean, you've got to train somehow. Yes. Like you've got to train to get to be a Blue Angel, and part of that would be actually doing the job, actually getting in the plane and doing the tricks. But it does seem awfully early for, like, an 18-year-old kid. Well, it also just strikes me as weird that we still have things like this at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, maybe it actually is, like, an intramural now that I think about it, because how many, like, single-person fighters are we flying in the 24th century? Right. Not very many. Yeah. We haven't seen very many. Yeah. The closest thing we've seen are sort of like those, like, submarine-shaped things that came out, you know, as the Borg were passing Mars. But right. even then, I mean, they weren't single. they weren't single- single-person fighters. Yeah, they, they made very short work of those, too. So, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true, yes. Maybe, though, if they had been smaller and more nimble and able to light their, uh, plasma? Light their plasma on fire, yeah, right. then <laughs> maybe then the board would have been like, well, let's get out of here. Right, you know? right. With that goofy, shaggy voice, by the way. <laughs> right. It seemed to me that in this episode, it is really easy to get back to Earth. This is actually the second mm-hmm. time we've been back. We went back in family, and that absolutely made sense because they had just been through hell. Right. And now it's just like one week we're at a we're at this time distortion, and we get hit by another <laughs> ship, and then these guys have got to get reacclimated to yeah. being 90 years in the future. But now we're just going to go back to Earth, and we're just there in the course of a week. I mean, it's really easy. The Enterprise is out in space for years yeah. at a time. Oh, but Picard's got a speaker graduation. Oh, okay. Well, we'll we'll make sure we get him back for that. <laughs> well, in fairness, that was probably like on the agenda the whole time. It was actually weird to me how many people were still on the ship. Hey, we're back at Earth. Yeah, I'm just going to stay here. Yeah, right. <laughs> You'd think everybody would be like, oh, please let me touch touch ground. You know? Terra firma. Yes, let me mm-hmm. touch terra firma, won't you please? Hey, um, so really, you know, I think we'll probably find a lot of great acting moments in this episode. Um, but how about that scene with Picard breaking the news to Beverly? It, it's such a masterful performance of keeping every bit of emotion and concern concealed, but not. And I love it. 
Yeah. She's so good in that scene. She's so good in that moment. It's really interesting, actually. When she goes to really display emotion, it somehow comes off cheesy. But remember the episode, uh, I guess it was um, uh, The Bonding, the one where um, young Jeremy Astor uh, loses his father and everybody's like, hey, Wes, you should go talk to him. Because right. you lost your father, huh? And right. Wes is right. like, wow. Really, the only person I want to talk to about is my mom. And she's like totally standoffish on the whole thing until she just can't anymore. Yeah, right. It's it's sort of like it, Gates McFadden like does her some of her best emotional delivery when what she's supposed to be doing is hiding her emotions in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, and oh, man, here's something that is stand out. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's a door with a doorknob. <laughs> in this episode. Then and, you have to get up and answer. Yeah, and I kind of get it that, okay, maybe maybe the, the technology to have those uh, sentient doors that, <laughs> that know your intention if you're about to walk through it or if you're about to turn around and say something important to finish the scene. I understand that those might be very expensive to install in every building on Earth, but I thought that at Starfleet Academy, if you're going to have them anywhere, you need to have them there because how will these kids learn how to work on a starship if it's the wrong kind of doors yeah good point that mm-hmm. although i do wonder if there's some kind of biometric something or other in the doors because did you notice mm-hmm. uh, how it would make sort of a little electronic noise when he would open it when he would close it oh yeah yeah they did put that in. yeah yeah probably bluetooth I, I, yeah not sure why exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know what that is unless yeah right unless maybe he's constantly wearing the lock it's a wearable mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. maybe yeah Could all right be. Yeah. And uh, seriously, Ken, why is there a student sitting in a flower bed? Um, and Boothby said it's the fourth time that week he had to replant it. <laughs> I, seriously, <laughs> it, it's these are the best and brightest who go to this place. Right. Yeah. And it's also the best and brightest who run it. So either the best and brightest who run it need to put a seat there and they need to put a bench there or the best and brightest need to realize, like, you don't go sit in the dirt when you're ready to study. <laughs> Yeah, these people, you know what they need? Mm-hmm. A little justice. That's what these people need. They do. You step, they on, do. The, you step on the flowers. Death penalty. You pay the price. That's <laughs> right. right. Uh, we learned in this episode that Captain Picard is the class of 27, 23, 27 to be precise, which, again, reminds us that Picard, the character, is definitely older than Patrick Stewart, the actor, which is cool because people age more slowly in the future. So I kind of like seeing that. And it also means that Boothby is super old. <laughs> so, Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Do, do people age more slowly in the future or do they just live longer? I, I think, remember uh-huh. uh, um, uh, Bones was 126 years old yeah. when he was touring the Enterprise. Which would make him older than Boothby, but not by much. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Because <laughs> Boothby actually says he, he's, he is now the age that Picard was when Picard was there. Yeah. However many years ago that was. Um, I actually, the thing that I noticed about Boothby and Picard, I mean, aside from, you know, their obvious affection for each other, mm-hmm. uh, Boothby actually remembers Picard better than Wesley indicated. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because Wesley came back and he's like, oh, Boothby did not remember you. <laughs> and Picard's like, oh. And then Wesley's like, until I showed him a picture of you. Yeah. And then Picard's like, oh. And uh, here he shows up and, and Boothby's like, whoa, Captain of the Enterprise, class of whatever this was. Yeah, mm-hmm. likes Earl Grey tea. 33 in, see him, if I remember. Hey, do you still make that noise when you eat? <laughs> I mean, he really, like, he, like, he, like totally yeah. remembers everything about Picard. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. I don't, I wonder if that whole thing was just, uh, was just Wesley 
um, screwing with the captain. Well, I wonder that too. I, I wonder if it was Wesley screwing with the captain or Boothby screwing with Wesley or mm-hmm. that Boothby just has a very unique memory. Um, interesting that in this episode, uh, as we're starting to see more in Next Generation, that transporters are literally everywhere. Just everywhere. Yes. I mean, it's interesting that you go from having a whole room on a starship. Remember in TOS, it was like, if you wanted to transport anywhere, you had to go to that room, right? And then on Next Gen, you introduce site-to-site transporting, and then you have the cargo bay with the big transporter pad, and then you got shuttles with transporter pads. And now even in tiny ships, little like stunt flying ships, you have emergency transporters. It is staggeringly complex technology, and yet they're very common. I've got the same problem, though, although if Mimas, is it Mimas or Memas? Mimas. Mimas? Yeah. Okay. So if Mimas actually has, is, is set up to receive, then maybe this is how this works. But I want to go back to, um, mm-hmm. well, you remember, we, we had a, a terribly controversial episode recently, uh, mm-hmm. The Outcast. Oh, yeah. Um, and, of course, the giant controversy. How were they able to beam off the Magellan when the Magellan had exploded? Right. I mean, that's right. really the critical thing to take away from <laughs> that episode. That was the thing. Man, that led to yeah. some hate mail. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so I was actually, I mentioned earlier that I was hanging out at a Star Trek convention. Mm-hmm. I was at uh, Northeast Trek Con 2016 in Albany, New York recently. Cool. And uh, and Rick Sternbach was there. Love that man. Um, yeah, he's great. Yeah. And if you don't know who Rick Sternbach is... Um, he designed Voyager. Okay, there. Mm-hmm. Do you need to know more? Fine. He designed DS9. Do you need more <laughs> still? The pad was kind of like his idea. Okay. I mean, there's, I mean, just you know, tons of tons of design work and and all kinds of elements and a lot of our you know sort of next gen through, I guess Voyager, uh, sort of visual uh, repertoire. Yeah. Our visual uh, cues we owe to Rick. So Rick was there. And I asked him the whole thing. So, hey, listen, <laughs> they're beaming somebody off the Magellan, but they're not. And the Magellan explodes, but there's no they're not going to a transporter thing. They're just going to a room. How does that happen? And uh, we have stumped Rick Sternbach. Wow. So wow. he's going to look into it because he says he's got tech notes on the various uh, episodes. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so he will be getting back to us regarding this uh, very divisive issue. Oh, I'm no. hoping we can put the hate mail behind us. OK, <laughs> because because we'll get the definitive answer. And uh, and then there will be no more controversy no. around the outcast. No. Well, that that'll be yeah. your job, Ken. <laughs> you get to answer all of that. Have fun. Yeah. No, uh, you're stupid with your transporter talk. People will say, <laughs> "Yes." Um, there's a. a a moment here. I, I feel like uh, definitely in the wrap up of this, I, I'm going to talk about the, the acting, but we do this. We, we foreshadow what we'll be talking about at the end. Um, there are some great reaction shots at the inquiry. Um, you, you have people doing their thing, but the camera cuts every now and then to these reactions. And um, it's really quite wonderful. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Albert is full of sort of tension and anxiety and worry. You could just see all of this in his eyes. And uh, Picard is just shooting dirty looks toward Wesley. <laughs> it's kind of great. It's not even, it's it's not full on contempt, but it's just sort of like, you know what? I don't believe this and I'm trying to be one step ahead of you. It's, it's really quite great. So um, I, I like those scenes a lot. Ken, a uh, question for you. Have you ever been to an air show? Um, kind of. 
I've been to San Francisco during Fleet Week. Okay. So the Blue, the Blue Angels buzz the city and buzz the bay uh, pretty much the whole week. Oh, so, cool. Yeah, I've lived in San Francisco. Yeah. So yeah. yes, I've been to an air show. I, I've been to a few. I, I love seeing vintage planes, and uh, I went to a few in Chicago. Blue Angels were there as well, and um, they're super cool. And you just kind of you just have to get into a place and then you see them come from a long, long way away and then they zoom by in a split second and hopefully you're in a good enough place to be able to see them do a stunt or a roll or something. But very often it helps if you have binoculars. So now imagine those planes were going 80,000 kilometers an hour. Yes. Because that's what Admiral Brand says that they were doing in those uh, little ships. 80,000 kph, yeah. But, you know, around... How many planets away? It's like four yeah, planets yeah, they're, away. Yeah. They're by a moon next to Saturn. Yes. So they're going to be apparently broadcasting that back. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, uh, what's his name? Not Tom Paris. <laughs> Locarno. Yeah. Nick. Locarno. Thank you. Locarno is, is stunned that there are cameras yeah. anywhere nearby. <laughs> Because yeah, they, they need to practice that part, apparently. That's a good point. You actually have to do a camera rehearsal before any live event. <laughs> so, man, you just ruined this episode for me because there's no oh, camera dear. rehearsal. I keep trying. Mm-hmm. I keep trying to ruin the episode for you. So, yeah. so there you go. Yeah. So I have a procedural question, uh, mm. which is that I realize this is an inquiry. It's not a trial. Right. But they don't seem to have any such thing as a discovery period. So mm-hmm. uh, that satellite image is just dropped out there when nobody expected it. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to go so far as to say that uh, Captain Satellic, he may be an unemotional Vulcan, but I think there's a little sadistic streak in him <laughs> by doing that. I, I say that he just dropped that image out there because he wanted to see those students squirm. He likes the element of surprise. Mm-hmm. It seems, which is weird because you wouldn't think he would like that. Um, I love the fact you you actually concentrated on the important things, although I'm thinking about the parts that would be important to me. I couldn't help noticing how late in the day everything got going. Now, for me, this would absolutely work. Yeah. But like the first day, they're like, okay, so we're going to start at three in the afternoon. That's 1,500 hours. Three in the afternoon. Right. Second day, they're starting at 1,300 hours or one in the afternoon. And I'm wondering, you know, were they trying to sweat the cadets or, you know, <laughs> do they just start the day slow at the academy? Just like, yeah. After lunch. What do you say? After lunch, we get together, we decide the fates of these four people. Eh. I, I, I like to think that as we become a more enlightened and progressive society aiming toward the 24th century, <laughs> that we will have late brunch every day. Yes, yes we get to sleep in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's pretty much it. As yeah, society yeah. evolves, we get to hit snooze like 25 times. That's the way it works. Yeah, in the future. Um I also love uh, not necessarily Picard dressing down Wesley in that tense, dramatic scene, but the moment right before that, when he's recounting their relationship about Wesley being the kid on the bridge and how Picard grew to respect him. Not only does it you know, serve the moment dramatically, obviously, because you have to build that relationship, you have to buy that that. That's why it's important to both of them. Mm -hmm. But it's a nice acknowledgement for everybody who's been watching for the last five seasons of exactly how that relationship played out. It's pretty great. You know, Um, I I would venture to say that there might have still been by this time, maybe some people watching Next Generation who still weren't big fans of Wesley. (laughs) But that that moment, that moment is sort of 
Picard justifying the journey that he's been through. So I, I really appreciated that moment. Um, I have a question about Admiral Brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, she closes the investigation. She even rings the bell. Then Wesley speaks up. <laughs> now, I don't know how things work in Starfleet, but but to me, once the bell has rung, can you do that? Um <laughs> You know, I I would assume that the bell means that it's over, done. If you're in a courtroom and the judge has already handed down a judgment, can you leap up and change your mind about something? I think you just leap up and dance, don't you? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you you would think by the 24th century, we would have figured out how to unring a bell. Right. (laughs) Right. Nope. Nope. It's an old fashioned bell, though. So maybe that's it. Yeah, that could be it. That could be it. And um, I thought, man, you know, for Picard to uh, to have that heartfelt moment at the end of the episode, Wesley is so despondent. Um, there's a little bit of relief in there as well, obviously, but but he, he's really despondent about what's gone on. And uh, Picard tells him, you know, it won't be easy staying here in this idyllic Japanese garden where it's always sunny and you have unbelievable technology at your disposal. Oh, uh, but your doors don't open automatically. So, yeah, it must really suck for you. The investigation was over. The bell rang. Did Captain Pigard let Wesley get away with not telling the truth? So I know the relationship between Picard and Boothby is likely to come up in this segment. Yeah. So there was one note that we both had last segment that I wanted to move to here. Um... And it's sort of a great kind of Starfleet-y sort of thing as well, mm-hmm. where Boothby's out there and he's weeding the, the bushes, and Picard says, you could use an herbicide, except he says herbicide, you could use an herbicide instead of your hands, and Boothby says, and you could explore space from a holodeck instead of in a starship. <laughs> I mean, it's cute. It's a cute moment between them, but yeah. it's also, I mean, it's one of those, it's, it's probably one of those gem moments that I talk about from time to time on this show. I mean, nothing is made of it except that it's just, I mean, there's a whole episode worth of message there. Yeah. And like that 10 second little thing, you know, you know, you could do that easier. Yeah. But I could do it right instead. (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah. It's two lines that really say so much uh, about who those people are and about, uh, well, like like you're saying, uh, the, the whole overall message of Star Trek. So I, I absolutely I mean, my note on that was three words. Love this moment. I, yeah. it, it, it's such a profound little nugget. Um, it, it may not be the entire point of this episode, but it's great. And it informs, hopefully, our understanding of the kind of guy that Picard is and the kind of guy that Boothby is. They, they, they have some stuff in common. Yeah, Picard wouldn't actually have to understand that, right? I mean, if, mm-hmm. if Picard went back to his, you know, home base mm-hmm. and uh, Robert was there yeah. and he was out there weeding, Picard would be like, well, of course he is. I don't think Picard would ever say, oh, no, you know, herbicide. Right. Is, it, is, it, is it wanting to take care of Boothby? Is it because Boothby is a man of a certain age? Is it because, you know, Picard cares about Boothby and feels a, feels a, a familial feeling that he's almost never felt with Robert, it seems? I mean, do you think that's what it's about or is it just... You know, hey, I'm newfangled. <laughs> and Boothby's like, hey, I'm not. You know what? It, it could be, but let's look at this e- even another way. This might be how they communicate with each other. This might be how they're on the same page with each other. Mm. You know, it, it, it's sort of Picard 
leading a conversation by knowing what Boothby is going to say in reply. It's sort mm. of like the secret handshake. This is how we relate. Yeah. Well, you know? I mean, when Picard says, hey, by the way, I never said, and Boothby's like, and you never have to. In fact, yeah. that's not. I yeah. mean, they, yeah, you're right. I think a lot of ways you could interpret that. Um, so then the question becomes, what did Picard do when he was a young cadet? And what did Boothby do for him? And the answer is ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> but I, I like that in five seasons, we've cracked the Picard armor bit by bit. So at every turn, he's becoming a more complex character with more in his past that we don't necessarily know about. But it 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 stops him from becoming the sort of idealized picture of the stoic starship captain. It gives him a little edge and it gives him a little human relatability. You know, we had those moments earlier. You, you and I talked about how an encounter at Farpoint, his behavior toward Riker was just really nasty. Mm -hmm. But then you have these moments where, you know, he confides in Wesley before he confides in just about anybody else um, about what he did in the academy and the mistakes that he made and how he didn't pass the first time and all this stuff. It's really wonderful stuff. He didn't pass the, the entrance exam the first time. It's all really wonderful stuff. It really makes Picard more believable. And I, I think you have to get there, even if it takes you five years to get there. I think you have to get there. Otherwise, if Picard had just stayed the same from day one, we would all be complaining, well, he's just not believable. He's not a real guy. He's just a sort of cardboard cutout of a captain. Can I ask you to do a compare and contrast? I know we don't often do this. You and I especially don't often do this, but compare and contrast that with Kirk. I'm trying yeah. to think, during the series, the only, quote, mistake, end quote, that I think Kirk would have acknowledged was getting together with Dr. Noel. Yeah. Otherwise, Kirk is is cardboard Captain Kirk all the way through, it seems. It's not until we get to the movies, actually, we find out oh, he's got a son that he's right. never seen and, and or never talked to and barely ever sees or whatever. Um, right. It's not, it's not until we, we actually, and of course, we talked before about how the movies are actually where you start to see those characters grow. Uh, that's when we got growth out of Spock. Uh, yeah. It was in Star Trek The Motion Picture. We get growth out of Kirk in Star Trek Two. We get we get really one of the best uh, scenes for Bones in Star Trek Five. oddly enough. I mean, they didn't grow until later. So, I mean, I guess is it – I guess the two things I'm asking is, first of all, can you compare and contrast the two captains? And then do we get the growth out of Picard not because we don't want him to be cardboard but because we're doing television in the 80s into the 90s as opposed to television into the 60s? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a handful of things. I, I think, A, it's, well, what you just said, that TV is different in the 80s than it is in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, so characters will be written differently. I think the other thing is, you know, Star Trek, the original series, had that shortened run of only three years. Who knows what they would have accomplished if they had done five or six or seven years. So it took us until years later to really be able to dig in and get some growth to those characters. So maybe we forgave them a lot of that because we just got a taste of the original series when it was first on. Then when the movies came back, that, that gave the writers a lot more freedom to dig more deeply. I think by the time Next Gen had been on for five years and maybe realizing early on, hey, look, we're not beholden to networks. It's a, a syndicated show. They can probably keep making it for much longer. 
then they could do something different and more profound with these characters. So I think all of those things are the right answer. All of those things mean that you get to make the character quite different um, and quite a bit more complex. And remember, you know, that memo that uh, that we shared on our website and shared with uh, Will, which was Patrick Stewart himself writing a note to Gene Roddenberry saying, hey, let's take Picard in all of these different directions, mm. which is great. And it's great that, that he was able to express that to somebody who was open to the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Sorry to, sorry to derail you, please. I know you were, you were on your way someplace and I, I pulled you over. No, well, I mean, it, it, this is every bit a Picard episode as it is a Wesley episode. So I, yeah. I think it, it's valid to, to talk about him. Um, and I, I think my only follow-up on that bit about him and Boothby is that I think it's really critical that we have that bit of exploration to make this episode work. So I love that you have this parallel where Picard made a mistake of some sort, doesn't matter what the mistake is. You need that scene because otherwise, when you come to the end, you would just have Picard moralizing, pretty much berating young Wesley from this point of moral superiority. I think it would have been really distasteful for the audience to see that. So the more important lesson in all of this is that we all make mistakes, but we all have the capacity to remember that about ourselves and be compassionate when it's merited. So Boothby's compassion had this profound effect on Picard, and Picard's understanding will have this long effect on Wesley. So they're able to tell that in such a condensed way with Picard. But I, I think this episode working really hinges on that. If you didn't have that, it would kind of fall apart. There's a little bit, there's something a tiny bit incongruous, though, or incongruous, however you say that mm -hmm. word. There's something that doesn't quite, you know, fit, though. I mean, so so when Picard goes knock to to Boothby and says, hey, listen, and Boothby's like, I don't want to listen. And Picard's like, no, seriously, because I wouldn't have graduated if you hadn't. Mm -hmm. And Boothby's like, ah, nah, let's not even talk about it, right? Because mm -hmm. you say that the original story had Wesley keeping quiet through yeah. the whole thing. And then right. it's something that I assume then it's something that he would have to carry. It's some, it would be like a weight on his shoulders. And I kind of wonder if Picard has that same weight on his shoulders, because the implication that I get anyway is that Boothby saved Picard from embarrassment. Boothby saved Picard from the shame that Picard at the end of it is like, dude, you got to take your lumps. Now, is he doing that because he doesn't want Wesley to walk around with whatever weight he's walked around with? Or is he doing that because he wants Wesley to be a better man than he ended up being? I mean, I know mm. you said at the beginning, what did Picard do? It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And I kind of agree, you know, whatever the thing that Picard did can be a MacGuffin if you want it to. That's fine. It's yeah. just, okay, so something happened and it happened. I wish I had a bit more clarity about what the ramifications of that were. Because mm -hmm. it sounds like Picard got to dodge the bullet that he's throwing Wesley in front of. Or mm. urging Wesley to stand in front of, to stand up and take. Yeah. And I think if we knew a little bit more about that, we would know a, a lot more about, I mean, look, Picard saying that to Wes makes perfect sense. That's exactly the kind of thing any Starfleet captain is supposed to say to Wesley. But then when we're given to understand that, oh, and Picard didn't, by the way. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, first of all, that's kind of interesting because it does make it more multidimensional, as you say. But then why is, why is he throwing Wes there? 
I mean, you know, if it looks like Wes is going to get, uh, could easily get away with the whole thing. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, some of that might just be circumstantial. You know, Wesley's thing is a public, well, maybe not public, but it, but it's an inquiry that is on the record for Starfleet Academy. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever Picard did might have been related to the Academy, but maybe it didn't have the risk of being public. You know, maybe it didn't have the risk of actually going in front of of all these people. Except Picard did say to Boothby that if Boothby hadn't done what he did, Picard wouldn't have graduated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, true. Yeah, it's a I good don't know. question. I mean, yeah. it's not, I mean, and and it's not clear, but it, it muddies up the whole thing a little bit. It doesn't really yeah. change the messages. Um, I guess I, w- I wish we had like 30 more seconds. I understand both of you didn't want to talk about it. I, I, as, a, <laughs> as a viewer, it would have been cool with me if he had, because I'd like to know a bit more about, again, not exactly what it was Picard did, but exactly what the ramifications were and exactly how he got out of whatever it was. Sure, sure. But I mean, it doesn't sound like he got out of it scot-free. You know, it, it, you you have to assume that the way this episode is told that he had a similar thing to Wesley in that he got crushed by it. But by getting crushed by it, he was able to come out better on the other end. So that's really all that we have to go on. It's just that he's right. He was emotionally in the same place as Wesley. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe there was more to it in a story background somewhere. But. I think that all we really need to take from it is just that the the emotional impact of it is the same, and and for whatever it was that that didn't kill them made them stronger, <laughs> you know, that's about all we have to go on for it. Um, let's talk about Beverly a little bit. So, I kept thinking, you know, just as there is nothing wrong with her, so it must be the universe. Um, there's nothing wrong with her child, therefore it must be the satellite data. <laughs> Um, she'll even talk to Admiral Brand about it. Yes. It's an interesting moment because I think we can all understand her position. We know what she's feeling. The terrible downside of that is we can't accept the flaws of others when it's necessary that we do so. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't really have much more than that, but it, it, it's... It, it's an emotionally believable scene and it's emotionally believable from Wesley that he, he so doesn't want his mom to save him, um, partly because he doesn't want his mom to save him and partly because she would be propagating the lie for him. So he's got uh, he's got two things there against him. It's a, it's a nice scene um, and it, it's I think it's played well by both of them. So let's talk a little about Nicholas Locarno, our mm-hmm. our bad guy. Um, mm. Well, he's an interesting <laughs> character. You know, he's he, he's a bit more complex than than just the villain of the piece. You know? Right. Um, and I think there's a few ways to look at him. I, I I feel like I've known people like this, people that I looked up to, people that I wanted to impress or wanted to. I like. I wish they would come out okay in whatever they're doing. And then looking back, you, you kind of feel duped after realizing there might be something morally rotten in there as well. I mean, I, I take exception yeah. with the idea that, you know, here's what's wrong with Nick. His argument to Wesley, he says, if I were in your place, I would do it without hesitation, meaning resign from the academy to save the team. Well, he is in that position. 
more so than Wesley, because he's the leader. He's starting out at that position. So if he means that, then he should take the fall right away. Well, so he can protect the team from the start by telling the truth. So when he challenged Wesley, Wesley should have said, "Okay, then do it. I mean, honestly, Wesley could have said that to him. What he was saying to Wesley was, if I thought if he couldn't live with it. Mm-hmm. If he couldn't live with the lie, then he would quit, is what he was saying. I don't think he was saying, if I could save everyone, I would. I think he was saying, if if the only thing I could do was not lie, then I would just leave. I'd get out. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. A, it's a subtle thing. I mean, look, you said he's the bad guy, and I said the hmm thing. He is the bad guy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he really is. Well, he, he's, he's the bad he's guy, really, but, it, but it's more than that, you know? Well, I, I'm, yes, I guess. I don't know. I mean, in the end, he does take the hit for everybody. Mm-hmm. But it's only after everybody else is going to take the hit. You know, right. I mean, I don't know. I, I think the best I could say for Locarno is he's got Admiral written all over him. <laughs> yeah. With Nova Squadron dealt with, it is time for us to think about what the cadets and their groundskeeper have done. And now we hit our last duty on the first duty. The part where we look at the messages, morals and meanings and and decide for us whether the episode holds up. And of course, I will start with that question, John. The first duty, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Um, I I think, sure thing. Uh, Maybe the worst you can say about it is that it's a little too much of an after-school special. Um, Mm -hmm. But as long as there are kids, and as long as people lie, and as long as we (laughs) find ourselves in moral conundrums, then this story holds up. Um, As a production, it holds up pretty well, too. So we get to do the same thing we did last time we saw Wesley, which is we give him some edge, we let him grow a little bit, and we justify him being there. He's not just Mm -hmm. the kid on the Enterprise because he's the kid on the Enterprise. He's a character with something central to do in the story, and he gets to grow from it. So I think that's a really great way to to have him back. Um, And just as a piece of storytelling... You know, I feel like Star Trek is a broad enough format that the procedural aspect of the show works pretty well, too. Maybe not for constant replay the way you and I do it, but there's enough there that that it was enough to kind of sink my teeth into at least the first few times watching it. Um, I'll tell you what else works for me here is that I feel like there aren't any wasted scenes. Um, Pretty much every scene drives the story forward. Many of them, maybe not most of them, but many of them have a good emotional impact for the characters that are in them. And there's motivation in each scene. And I would say this, if if you don't know much about acting technique, if you've never been in an acting class or something, this is a good look at understanding what it's all about. So just look at any scene and ask yourself, what is the objective of each character in that moment, regardless of the lines on the page? And you can tell that in a lot of scenes in this, they're playing to that, and it's wonderful. You know, we 
we've talked every now and then about the the subtext of a scene and this episode has got a lot of great moments of that where it's two characters talking whether it's picard and boothby or wesley and beverly or wesley and lieutenant albert and the lines on the page are one thing but each character knows something that the other one doesn't and it informs how they're reacting, even if the lines on the page are something that's very straightforward. So I thought there was a lot of good stuff going on in this episode regarding that. And then just as a piece of Star Trek, you know, we've talked about episodes before, like Corbomite Maneuver and the Omega Glory, that really just dump the message right at your feet. And that message tends to be, when it comes to Star Trek, it's okay here are the things that you say you believe in, but it's so easy to not do those things. So you know what's hard is doing the right thing. So if you say you are who you are, and if you actually believe in the things that you believe, then you have to do the harder thing. So that that's that through line that we've picked up in so much of Star Trek, and, and this in its way is doing exactly that. It's following that precedent set way back in the beginning by Corbomite and uh, and many others. So how about you? I think it's a good episode, but it's also kind of draggy. Hmm. I mean, I know that there's for me personally, I was not I was not as enthralled, I will say, as you were. Fair enough. I mean, and you're right. Every scene drives it forward. That's true. Uh, we again get that wonderful scene just in the very beginning of Act One between um, between Patrick Stewart and Gates McFadden. Mm. Um, I, I, I do think it's interesting. That seems to be, and it's probably she could probably you know act the whole range, but it tends to be that the strongest scenes for her are the ones where she very definitely has to fight what she really wants to do. Mm-hmm. You know what she wants to do in that scene is run to her baby boy, right? What she wants to do in that scene that I talked about where Wes wants to talk about his dad is run away from her son. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and so when, when she's forced to play, when she's forced to act against what it is the character actually wants to do, man, she just shines. It's just wonderful to see. Um, I would also say this is the strongest that Will Wheaton has been allowed to be on the show to this point. Yeah. I know we've got at least one or two more appearances by him, maybe three or four. I can't remember exactly how many. Uh, I would say this is the strongest that he's been because there's not a moment where it's, oh, look, it's young Wesley. You know, I mean, he he's in it. <laughs> he's in it deep. There is not a cute moment off this kid in yeah. this episode. There's not a cute line for Wesley. There's not a slap on the back for Wesley. I mean, it, it starts with, wow, you nearly died. We're glad to see you. You know, all the way through to you've really disappointed me <laughs> you know, to, to everything's going to be fine. I mean, it really it really is just a strong turn for uh, for Will Wheaton. Um, and while there is an after school special element to the show, he's he's like I say, he's less kid than he's ever been in this. I think where I got frustrated was we know in act one that there's a secret. And I know because of the way Star Trek works and because of the way Perry Mason works, that we're not going to be able to find out what the secret is until, you know, much later in the show. Right. So, I mean, I'm sitting there going, well, I know it's set up to make me wonder what happens, but I wonder what happens. But because it's set up to make me wonder what happens, then I'm just kind of frustrated. It's like, oh, so what do I have to sit through to get to what actually happened? Now, that might just be my personal thing. I was never a fan of Matlock. Um, (laughs) I like Perry Mason for the kitsch. 
I don't like Perry Mason because, you know, it's, oh, I have no idea what's going to happen. Right. Um, so that might just be the type of television that I like. But I really, I mean, I can't fault this episode for much. It's just not, I mean, the procedurals are never the things that actually are, I like Law and Order for that because, you know, it covered the law and the order. Right. Both. As yeah. opposed to, you know, just the uh, just the law, yeah. I guess. Come to think of it, that show was reversed, wasn't it? It should have been order and law because it was the cops and then it was... But that's a whole other thing. Do you want to talk about the messages of the show, sir? You know, I, I just kept thinking throughout this whole thing, uh, what would Robin Leffler think of uh, what Wesley was up to? <laughs> you know? It's so funny. I almost said to you in, in, in an earlier segment, wow, which of Leffler's laws did he violate in this episode? Or how many of them, yeah, for that matter? About half of them, I think. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably yeah, so. Too bad. I think there are obviously messages in this um, more than one um, and we're as a style we're, we're sort of back to the you see Timmy moment or in this case the you see Wesley message um, don't lie and along with that don't give in to peer pressure particularly that kind of peer pressure that would uh, compel you to lie because the truth is more important than protecting the liar who you think is your friend and uh, in this case, the one that he thinks is his friend is the one who is morally rotten. Um, sometimes you need the right friends or family to hold you accountable. Again, paging Robin Leffler, if only she had been around for this. Mm -hmm. um, I like that Picard calls out Wesley that choosing not to answer is not an answer. It's cowardice and it's a cop out. He says a live emission is still a lie, and I have to agree with him on that. Um, the line from this episode that everybody will always quote because A, it's powerful, and B, it is delivered powerfully, is the first duty of every Starfleet officer is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth, historical truth, or personal truth. Yes, yes, and yes, I'd agree with all of that. And I would also say that we have a very difficult time with the truth and mm. all of its permutations. This isn't just a Starfleet thing. This really should be the motto for what humans should expect from each other and of themselves. That's me being very idealistic. <laughs> but mm -hmm. but it's enormously important and enormously powerful. Um, and maybe just on the biggest scale here. Uh, the, the more sort of human scale is own up to your mistakes because people grow from them and people forgive. That was the great thing going back to, you know, Picard having this story, having his background revealed a little more in this one. Again, because you, you humanize him and then therefore it humanizes us to say, OK, well, anybody can make a mistake. What's important is not the mistake. What's important is owning up to it. And moving on in a truthful and moral way from that point. Um, so, I, yeah, you know, and all of those hold up. It's Star Trek painting in big, bold brush strokes. Um, but I, I think it's perfectly valid for it to do that from time to time. Did I miss anything? Anything that you like in there as well? Uh, no, no. Um, there are things that I wonder about, but I don't know that I want to say them out loud. <laughs> okay honestly i mean it just uh, the one thing that i do wonder about as we go further into star trek i mean it's interesting you have this idea but i know that there are there are stories coming up where starfleet is going to act differently than starfleet says it wants to act i mean we've always talked about this this goes again to the corpomite maneuver yeah you know the i mean as you mentioned um, earlier 
we we need to be who we say we're going to be um and and boy do we need that man i just yeah. it the whole thing just makes me because to hear you say this it's so obvious and it's so true and it's so being ignored by so many people right now yeah in so many different ways yeah we, i mean we say we're that thing but we're going to be something else because we're going to try to get back to that thing Everything you said there is so 100% spot on, and yet it just makes me want to, you know, grab a bottle of something and sit in the corner and watch what happens. Yeah, I get what you're saying, because the, the frustration is that we're using our fiction to express how we think we should be. You know, we're, we're using this fictional medium to say, no, here's who we are. Here's how we can get along. Here's how we can be. But it's fake. <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of hopefully what what we want to happen which is that we put it in action in real life we we're, we're getting our our best morals from our you know weird future science fiction stuff yeah and getting um yeah hey i have an idea yeah mission log is produced by roddenberry entertainment executive producer rod roddenberry do you like my idea i like it Find out more at Roddenberry.com. Uh, for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Track FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, Ken, Cost of Living. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Sure, they were mature sounding during the episode, but you would not believe how many times it took the guys to say the show title, without giggling, like fifth graders and transmission. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.